Hey, I'm Jesse. We are in the book of Ruth, but we're laying the deep foundation within the law of God. In Deuteronomy 25, we see one of the, the biblical bases for leveret marriage. And we see this prescription by God that the brother-in-law of the deceased would father children through his widowed sister-in-law and name the first progeny after his late brother. But did you know that there's a story in Genesis of a guy refusing to answer this call? It's in Genesis chapter 38, verses 6 through 10. Genesis chapter 38, verses 6 through 10. Uh, it is weird. <laughs> it's weird. But in light of leveret marriage, it makes sense. When it's removed from the context of leveret marriage, which is the concept that's at play throughout the book of Ruth, man, you can come to some wild conclusions. And I've heard this passage taught in utterly bizarre ways. I read a book on purity for young guys to help them repent from the sin of pornography. And it actually tried to use this teaching to tell them that like God hates them when they masturbate. That's not at all what the text says. Uh, the show 30 Rock by Tina Fey, really, really funny show. In it, she's put on the spot at a funeral. She gets up saying like, you're like, come on Bible. She's trying to find something. And of all the passages of the Bible for her to arrive at, she reads in front of this huge crowd of mourners, this text. <laughs> so when you understand it contextually, you can see that God is actually setting a high expectation for the Redeemer. Jesus fulfills that role of the Redeemer, but man, there's a lot of shame for the dude who is unwilling and unable to fulfill the role of Redeemer. Here, here's Genesis uh, chapter 38, beginning in verse six. Judah got a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty to her, as uh, perform your duty as her brother-in-law and produce offspring for your brother. As we've seen in the last day, uh, day or two, that's exactly what's prescribed in Deuteronomy chapter 25. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. Okay, it's remarkable, right? Because biologically he would be his, but he'd be named for heir and not for himself, Onan. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released his semen on the ground so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. What he did was evil in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. So you can imagine uh, poor teenage dudes in the youth group reading that book on purity reading this and, and hearing the author try to convey the act of spreading one semen on the ground as something that God would put you to death for and being stricken with complete terror. <laughs> no, what's really going on here? Leveret marriage. Onan was, like we saw in Deuteronomy 25, the unwilling redeemer. He would not father a child in, in memoriam of his late brother so that his name would not be removed from the promised land. And so he actually is in, he was actually, he was due some pretty ill treatment. According to Deuteronomy 25, his bereaved sister-in-law had full right to go before the elders of the city gate and remove his sandal and spit in his face and, and let that be his new name. But instead the Lord just took him out. 
So this Genesis 38 passage, uh, the story of Judah and Tamar is a, is a shocking one, by the way. Um, but within this little excerpt from it, you see an example of leveret marriage at play. God took the role of the Redeemer seriously. Onan is an example of a guy who was expected and even told by his father, Judah, that's Jesus' ancestor, by the way, do the duty of a brother-in-law to your sister-in-law. Okay, your brother has died. Now it's expected that you would marry her and father a child and name the firstborn after your late brother. He refuses to do so. And so even in the act, or even in the act of intimacy, he interrupts the process. And because he does that, this poor woman is left alone. She's left bereaved, she's not provided for, and then the legacy of heir is just gone forever. And for that reason, God puts Onan to death because he refused to fulfill this calling as spelled out in Deuteronomy chapter 25. The very next verse is what we're going to talk about um, uh, talk about as well. And it also, I think, also points to the, uh, points to the cross. It's Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 11. If two men are fighting with each other and the wife of one steps in to rescue her husband from the one striking him, and she puts out her hand and grabs his genitals, you are to cut off her hand. Do not show pity. Wow. So lots of like awkward passages. I think I've just read two of the most awkward passages in the whole Old Testament in one devotion. Uh, welcome to JCM, everybody. <laughs> this passage likewise points forward to the brutality of the cross. That uh, it was expected, it was expected that the Redeemer would step up and fulfill the duty to redeem the bride who was in distress. That's the very previous passage in the very next passage in verse 11, after giving this uh, deprived widow who has now been publicly humiliated the chance to publicly humiliate her would have been redeemer. There's also this prescription about what happens when she gets up and she publicly grabs another man inappropriately. All right, some of it has to do, uh, some of it has to do with just like the, the impropriety of it all, the, the shocking nature of it all. Like what, why would she have done this? But the, the prescription, uh, the prescription to cut off her hand stands uniquely within the whole of the Old Testament law because it's the only time that we're told, that the people of Israel were told to actually mutilate someone. Even earlier in the passage, when there's a prescription for the number of lashes that a man may receive, it's even mitigated. So as to say, make sure that you don't strip this man of his dignity, don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. The same passage that Paul refers to at multiple points to talk about pastoral compensation in the New Testament context. This is the only time it's ever said outright that you would actually cut someone's hand off. I mean, it's shocking, right? It's, it's rightly shocking because it stands uniquely within the Old Testament passage. I don't believe that this was ever enacted. I can't say that for sure, but I, my basis for that is the events of the Gospel of John uh, within the textual variant at the end of chapter 7 and chapter 8, where this woman is caught in adultery. They let the guy go, they bring her forward, and uh, it's like, okay, let's stone her to death. And there's this sort of two uh, set of doors put before Jesus, stone her to death and look incompassionate, refuse to stone her to death, and then be accused of forsaking the law of God. And then Jesus takes like this third door. Um, I believe that John chapter 8 is to be accepted as canonical, by the way. But I, I think that moments like those prove that these prescribed practices weren't really followed through on. It's also why the story of Phineas, when he would stab two people through with the spear because they violated the temple of God. It's so shocking. It's recorded in scripture because it's the only time anybody ever actually followed through on that incredibly drastic 
uh, command to put to death someone who entered the temple uh, inappropriately. This act of mutilation is gory and shocking. And the only time we ever really see this followed through on is actually at the cross. And it's not, it's not a woman who publicly made everybody embarrassed in this awkward conflict. It's, it's actually the sinless Jesus. He's the one who's mutilated. He's the one who receives the same lashing as prescribed in Deuteronomy 25. And what's all the more unfair about it, what's all the more confounding about it is that the one who is mutilated, the one who is who the one the, the one who is beaten beyond human recognition is also the redeemer who's described in this very chapter of chapter 25. He's not Onan. He's willing to pay the full price. He is the blood relative of us, the distressed bride who is willing, who is able to pay the full price. This becomes the basis for the cross. It was Deuteronomy that was in at least the minds, apparently not the hearts, of the Jewish authorities calling out for the crucifixion of Jesus, trying to manipulate Pilate into giving them the cross, something that God never prescribed. This is the Old Testament backdrop. Ruth is an example of a narrative that takes place in the era of Judges with all of this in mind. In the New Testament, it finds its culmination in Christ on the cross. Every prescription for punishment for wrongdoing is fulfilled by Jesus on the cross. The humiliation of the unwilling redeemer, right? The, the lashes for the one, uh, uh, the, the, the lashes for the one who has broken the law, the being put to death for your own sin, Deuteronomy 24, 16, uh, even even cutting the woman's hand off, right? Not shown pity. These things are fully realized in the utter brutality of the cross. It's all the more shocking because they're visited upon the innocent one. And that innocent one is the descendant of Ruth. <laughs>